Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Ben Merkel, President of New St. Andrews College, as our guest. Well, why don't we start with your journey? You know, I always like to start with who are the mentors that shaped um, your personal and professional journey? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think uh, I remember as a student, I, I did University of Idaho, my undergraduate degree. I did an education degree and my I picked a chemistry major within the education department. And um, so I was doing chemistry um, not because I liked it. Um, I, I more was working on, um, I just knew that I was intellectually lazy and the chemistry class, I didn't know what I wanted to do and chemistry seemed to be just difficult. And so I kept signing up for chemistry classes, um, just to learn how to think and, and work hard with my mind and, uh, ended up graduating with a chemistry degree, which I didn't really want. Um, I, my goal, I was, um, my priority was I really wanted to go into the ministry. I wanted to be a pastor or something like that. And so when I graduated, I um, came on staff with the church doing, working with University of Idaho students, doing evangelism with U of I students. And um, during that time, I started taking, um, I, I started taking a lit class. And the reason I took this lit class was um, because there was a guy I was lifting weights with and he really wanted us to use the University of Idaho gym, and we had to do that. Uh, so I had to be a student in order to be able to use the gym. Um, and I, I originally signed up for a different class. I can't remember what it was, but then a, a, another friend said, well, take this lit class with me. And um, I thought it was a class on Chaucer. And I thought a class on Chaucer just sounded really lame. I um, Because in my mind, if it wasn't chemistry, if it wasn't equations, if it wasn't numbers, then it wasn't real. And not that I liked it. I just didn't believe that poetry was real. Um, so he said, well, no, we'll take this class with me and we'll sit at the back and make fun of the English majors together. And I thought, well, that sounds like a noble cause. I'll do that. Um, so I, I went ahead and enrolled in this class on Chaucer and the guy who was the instructor, he came in, I remember it was the middle of winter. He came in wearing cutoff uh, jean shorts, a t-shirt, he was former army airborne and he just lit the class up and um, I'd come out of the, I did um, I worked on a tank crew in the Marine Corps and uh, there was something about the way he handled class. that just um, mesmerized me. I was just so captivated by it. And we got into Chaucer and he's taking this poem apart in this way that just blew my mind. And my goal was to be a minister. I wanted to help students to understand who they were, who God was and all of that. And uh, I saw in this class, he had a far more profound effect on the students than a lot of the work that I was doing in ministry. And I just, uh, I was blown away by it. And so it was really that moment. I just started taking lit class after lit class. Uh, whatever, every time he offered a class, I would take it. Uh, originally, I told people it was just because I wanted to use the gym. <laughs> but but truth in truth, what was happening was I was starting to really love uh, poetry uh, literature, the liberal arts, and all of that. And it really changed the course of my direction. I ended up then uh, on faculty at a liberal arts college, and kind of the rest is is history from there. But I would say it was that moment that really completely moved me in a different direction where I started to think that higher education um, can have a really profound blessing on the lives of students. So did you plan to be a president? <laughs> no, never. 
I never, even, even after I came on staff, I wouldn't have thought that I, I bounced back and forth between, um, being, I, I, I taught and then I also still work for the church and I would go back and forth between being a minister or being a, a college instructor. Um, I, I decided I really liked the college work and I'd, I'd only done my master's. So I decided I want to go for the doctorate and um, I applied to Oxford and was accepted to university of Oxford. So we moved to England, sold everything, moved my wife and five kids to England and um, got a PhD came back. But when I came back, there was no job at the school I'd been teaching at. So I ended up going into back into ministry um, and it was just kind of out of nowhere that there was an opening and our, our, our previous president had stepped down and um, I had held a number of various administrative posts, including being the academic dean. Um, but I wasn't full time at the school at that at that moment. But when they needed a president, that's when I I, I stepped in at, at that point. I was interim president and then made president after that. But I, I had uh, I really didn't think that I was headed in that direction. I didn't have aspirations uh, in that direction at all. And when I stepped in, I don't think I knew what I was doing whatsoever. But um a lot of it has come together to make a whole lot of sense. Well, so I, I, I'd love to hear the story around going to Oxford, going to England with your family. It sounds like you big family. Yep. Can you tell us about that, uh, that experience and maybe that chaos? Yeah, it, it was a wild time. Um, we moved um, five little kids. Um, I, I think our youngest was one and our oldest was like six or seven at that point. Uh, my wife was homeschooling the little ones while they were there, so they'd be ready to go back to the school they're at uh, here in Moscow. Um, it was it was really uh, sometimes it really terrifying and and uh, scary, and sometimes just totally magical. We ended up living in a little farmhouse out in the country, a few miles outside of Oxford. I'd ride my bike into school. Kids come home, the kids are out in the field playing all day, um, so it was pretty idyllic for them. We lived very close to C.S. Lewis's uh, house, uh, the kilns. We would go on regular trips there. There's kind of a hill and a pond behind and the kids would walk it and pretend they were like they were in Narnia. Um, uh, but Oxford is a pretty incredible place. You have all kinds of just crazy opportunities all around you at any given moment. So I, I have to touch upon too, you mentioned tank crew. Yeah, I was on a tank, uh, M1A1. So can you tell us about that experience? <laughs> um, it was, uh, so I, I joined uh, the Marine Corps right out of um, high school, graduated on a Friday, and I was at boot camp getting my head shaved on on Monday morning. Uh, I was still 17. I turned 18. Um, I had my 18th birthday at boot camp. It was the summer of 1990, which is the same year that um, Saddam invaded Kuwait. Um, up until, you know, throughout the 80s, we just, there was not a whole lot of military action and joining uh, the Marines just seemed like a way to pay for college. Uh, but um, when Saddam went into Kuwait, that all changed really fast. And it was, it was, uh, it was interesting. Um, my, um, my unit got activated, um, but I was in a, I was on a special deal with the reserves where I would go to boot camp the first summer and tank school the second summer. And my unit got activated in November. Um, and so I hadn't been to tank school. So I, they activated me, I dropped out of college and everything. And then I went to um, report in and uh, they said, because I hadn't gone to tank school, I, I was going to 
they're going to wait, send me a tank school. And then I would join them over, over in Kuwait. Um, but that war went so fast and they were sending people home pretty quickly. So I never ended up getting over there. I got orders a couple of times that always got canceled. Wow. Wow. I mean, with all of those experience, can you, I'm sure there's several things that you can point to and say, boy, that really helped prepare me for the presidency and where I am now. Can you touch upon some of those things, whether it be from Oxford or whether it be from military, yeah. et cetera, that you can tie in and, and say, gosh, this really did help prepare me in these ways? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Marine Corps, I like half my stories. I mean, my, my time in the Marine Corps was pretty brief and, and not very glamorous, but half of my stories of lessons I learned in life come out of my time in the Marine Corps. It was, it was very intense, exciting and, and opening. I think that, um, I think the thing that, um, the thing that I learned there or, or, or that has kind of stuck with me was I, I was just a, um, a really skinny little kid from Boise, Idaho. I had no, none of my family were Marines or anything like that. I just, I decided I just want to swing for the fence and do something that would scare me. I want, I wanted something that would scare me and the Marine Corps sounded terrifying. Um, so I did that. And then when I decided to go for grad school, I just, I, it's normally when you apply for grad school, you apply for five or six or seven programs. I only applied for Oxford. That was it. And, uh, and, I just decided let's swing for the fence and go for it. And I think that that, that sense of adventure, I think is, is something that's really important that you really um, push yourself, take yourself out of your comfort zone and, um, and swing for the fence a little bit. Um, and I think that's always stuck with me and something I, I try to pass on to the students as much as I can. That's great. And now are you still, um, do you still get to to teach today? I do. I teach um, our freshmen. They get one lecture from me per week. That's more of a spiritual formation kind of course. And then um, next term, I'll do a Anglo-Saxon elective. Um, it's Anglo-Saxon poetry. I'm not doing the language. So I'll, I'll going back to that, that lit route that I had. Um, I, I will teach. Um, yeah. One elective in Anglo-Saxon poetry. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now um, at New St. Andrews College, you have about 250 students today. Is that right? Yeah, that's about right. There's two, 227 in the undergrad and then probably another uh, about 45 in the grad school. Okay. So how how big do you want to get? How big can you get? Um, with our current facilities, we can grow to 500. So we are in an interesting um, uptick right now. We've probably doubled over the course of my time as president over the last eight years. We've about doubled and are continuing to get um, really strong uh, recruitment. Uh, it's an interesting moment uh, for us. So we, with our current facilities, we can grow to 500 though. Okay. And most of your students come from out of state. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you're familiar at all, I don't know if you ever come across the classical Christian education movement. Um, there's a there's a movement in the K to 12 world uh, called classical Christian education. Um, and where I am in Moscow is kind of ground zero for for that whole movement. Um, the there's a group called the ACCS Association of Classical Christian Schools that started here in Moscow and that that has um uh, served the growth of this movement across the U.S. So you've got a few hundred thousand kids in the K to 12 movement. And then, uh, and then same, there's another homeschooling version of this uh, with a few more hundred thousand. So you've got a pretty strong, um, groundswell of K to 12 students. NSA then started as 
basically a logical next step for kids coming out of that uh, K to 12 education. So that's why we tend to, we don't pull just regionally. We pull from across the U S it's kids who are getting a classical education of some sort are coming here for college. Absolutely. Okay. And so how do you, how do you engage local community and businesses and churches kind of take your pick? How do you engage that local, those yeah. local groups? Yeah. One of the things that's really distinctive about NSA, there's a number of things that are very distinctive about us, but one of them is that we don't do dorms out of principle, um, that, that we want the students to get an apartment or find a place to live in the town. And um, because we don't want them removed from that kind of normal life. And so I tell the students, find yourself an apartment, figure out how to get Wi-Fi, figure out how to do your laundry, figure out how to cook for yourself, pay your bills. But basically we want them to be pushed into adulthood as fast as we can. Um, And so not having dorms, I think helps to, um, first of all, inculcate a sense of maturity uh, and, um, you know, kind of steep on-ramp into adulthood for the students, but it also then pushes them into the community. You don't, you don't go to the cafeteria, you go to the local businesses, you go to the restaurant, you go to the grocery store, you get involved. Um, and then one of the other things we do, we're a Christian school, we're a distinctively Christian school, but we don't, um, most schools will have like a weekly chapel or something like that. We don't do chapel um, because we want to tell the students, we're not your church. Um, you don't pretend like we're your Sunday morning worship you should go out and find a church to be a part of. So we really prioritize getting the students to be a part of the town. And, and what that does is, again, it just helps them when they graduate. There's no shock of like leaving college life into real life because they've been living real life the whole time. And I imagine you, you, know, you have uh, almost 80% first year retention and your graduation rates are well over 60%, which is that's very strong. Comparatively speaking, would you attribute to what you just described as part of the reason that those numbers are so high? And then how do you ensure career readiness as well? Yeah. You say career readiness? Career readiness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the the, um, retention and degree completion, yeah, we have about a 90% freshman retention rate and and, uh, I think it hovers around 70 on the six-year degree completion rate. Um, that's at least the targets that we're always aiming for. I was shortchanging you there. Okay. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Um, but I think that the, um, I would say one of the most significant things in achieving that is, okay, this is another thing that's very distinct about NSA is we don't have a whole variety of different um, degrees and majors and whatnot. We have one set of courses that everybody works through. And so when you show up as a freshman, you're in a, teeny little college with a group of um, classmates that you get to know fairly well. And you're all taking those same classes as you go through. And so there is a, um, there's a camaraderie that forms amongst the students. And there's a, there's a teamwork that happens. That's not, we don't coach it. It's just kind of something that naturally happens where the students form their study groups, their, their friendships and whatnot. And they have a tendency to carry each other through, you know, you can't, it's a lot harder to get lost and, and hide in the corner when, when you've got such a small group that are as personally engaged as, as they all are. So I think that's probably the, the main um, factor in, in getting that kind of um, degree completion rate. Mm-hmm. As far as um, 
As far as career readiness, so um, I mentioned that we only do one degree, and that degree is um, in liberal arts and culture. Um, so it's not a professionalized degree at all, which is, I think, um, quite um, out of the ordinary. I think people are, are tending to see college increasingly as um, specifically about vocational certification. Um, and so by, um, by making it a liberal arts degree and not vocational certification, what we're doing is we're focusing more on those core competencies, communication, critical thinking, creativity, leadership. Um, those, uh, those are the things that we're focusing on. So we're not trying to, um, uh, certify students for one specific career. Um, what, what I see our way of connecting to vocation is basically more through internships and directed studies. So having um, companies that will grab you as a student, um, you know, for instance, my daughter just graduated last year. Um, she did New St. Andrews, but the entirety of her time here, she was working for a publishing company that was about two or three blocks up the road from us and learning how to um, film and edit. So she's a quite accomplished, uh, uh, you know, videographer, um, but she received all of those skills with hands-on training on the job, not in the classroom. What we taught her was how to think. And so, for instance, she just um, this uh, about a month ago, she dropped her first documentary where she filmed. She did the entire thing um, and her ability to to make and construct an argument over the course of the the um the documentary comes from our our curriculum you know she she learned how to think and to speak to communicate from us but the ability to hold the camera to edit and all of that she learned on her job down the street that to me is the kind of the that's a best uh the best kind of situation that our students can get into where you you are we do what we do best, which is teaching you how to think, how to speak, how to argue, and then let various careers grab you and teach you the specific vocational skills. I think that um, our workforce is is transforming to a very different kind of workforce. And um, I think that colleges that are just trying to certify people for specific skills, I don't think you're getting as much out of your money with that because we tend to move laterally very quickly now instead of just vertically. So you might do, um, you might start as an accountant and then you might work as a real estate agent and then you became a pastor and then you, you we, we move all over like this. We don't just go up. And so I think it's more important for us to be training people with the ability to acquire and to self-teach and mm. to pivot um, in a more entrepreneurial kind of way than it is for us to be just certifying them in one particular set of skills. Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of pivot, I'll, I'll shift here just a little bit with this question. But, yeah. you know, you had just begun writing a series of posts mm -hmm. titled Big Ad, Too Big to Fail. Yeah. Now, I know we we probably don't have enough time um, in this time slot to talk about to talk about yeah. that. But can you give me a sense of what was your goal in writing this series? Yeah, it's it's a long um, there's a lot of materials 
that we're still working to get out there. Um, first of all, you know, I, I stepped in as the president of this college and I had the job of representing the vision for this school. And for the first couple of years, there was a lot of me digging down into why is this school doing something that is totally different than every other college out there? And what was the reason for this? And, and is this important for the world that we're looking at right now? And what I discovered was a number of really profound um, and important principles that were really built into the way this whole school is set up, that the more I look at the world around me, the more I started thinking, this is exactly what the world needs right now. I need to start speaking up about what we're doing. One of those pieces is about that liberal arts distinctive. That, that was one of them. It, it, initially, this, this came out of, in my mind, a, a threefold argument for what we are doing. Um, I, I was... Um, Going back to the previous presidential uh, debates, um, when we had a uh, strong push for free college, that, that we should have free college for everyone, um, I really was intrigued by that and thinking about, okay, what does it mean to have a free college? Because as near as I could tell, when people talk about having a free college, they are taking one very particular definition of the word free. And I think it's... Um, I think it's the lowest possible definition. So when we say free college for everyone, we're tending to mean basically it's kind of like a free pizza. You ate the pizza, but somebody else picked up the bill. So it, it was free to you. That's when we say free college, that tends to be what we're meaning where somebody else is paying for your college. But I was thinking, okay, that word free um, as an American free, really freedom means something. And particularly as a Christian man, I, I, there's something really particularly powerful to me about what does it mean to be spiritually free? And so I wanted to unpack what would a truly free college be? Um, and so I put it in three categories. The first one was um, financially. Um, we we have a real, I have a real concern about all of the, the students who are getting massive student loan debt and not understanding what they're getting. And I think that um, colleges can bait them into taking on an irresponsible amount of debt. Um, and so we're graduating all these students that are walking around with a huge bit of debt and a college degree that's not going to really actually service uh, that debt. Student loan forgiveness is just another way of hiding the, um, I think, some of the mistakes that have been made. It doesn't actually make the money go away. It just makes other people pay for it. So what would it look like to have a college that was truly free and that it, it it did not leave you encumbered with something like student loan debt, as well as, um, so one of the things about New, New St. Andrews is we don't take any student loans, we don't take any Pell Grants, and that um, leaves us unencumbered in a whole host of ways. Our students who graduate here graduate without a whole bunch of federally subsidized student loan debt. They graduate ready to go out and enter the workforce as productive men and women. Um, I think that's one form of freedom that's really important. The second form of freedom is the one I was just describing about the liberal arts. Um, the uh, the liberal arts comes from the Latin word liber, which is the Latin word for a free man as opposed to the hireling uh, or the servant. Um, the liberal arts were the, the subjects that you use to inculcate a certain kind of thinking in um, in someone's mind. And it was a liberating kind of thinking. I'm not certified to just perform one set of vocational skills. I'm actually educated to be able to think about the world in general. Um, I think that kind of freedom is really important. And then the third freedom is the spiritual freedom, freedom in Christ, which I think is immensely significant. It's why it's the real reason why I do this, because I think the spiritual formation that happens at the school is really significant. And so I want to see my students have that kind of 
of freedom passed on to them. Um, that series then, the Big Ed uh, series, is, is really just our beginning of unpacking what I'm describing right there. Uh, President Markle, um, your campus is quite new compared to your other cohort uh, presidents and campuses who've been around for 140 years since land yeah. grants and what have you. What was the impetus for actually creating your university? Yeah, it was started in 1994, and it goes back to that story about classical Christian education. So um, it really, um, the first classical school was started here in Moscow in 1980, and then uh, New St. Andrews was started in 1994, which is basically when that first class graduated and was starting to look to go to college. So the the real impetus was thinking about how to have a college degree that can live on top of this classical Christian education that these students are getting. So I, I looked at your the various majors you've studied. I looked at your dissertation. I also looked at the book you wrote on Alfred the Great, just because I'm very interested in West Saxon history as well. So okay. that intrigued me. So let's start from, you know, Alfred. I mean, arguably England may not be around if it wasn't for him. So what what got you interested in in, in writing a book on Alfred? Well, so when I, um, going back to my, th that story about that English class, um, that class was, um, it was medieval English literature, which I eventually took a year of Anglo-Saxon in that class. And um, we did learn Anglo-Saxon grammar and then got to read Beowulf in the Anglo-Saxon, which was like the highlight of my, my, my time. Um, and then when I wrote my, um, my thesis for that master's, I discovered that um, Alfred the Great had translated um, Augustine's soliloquies from Latin into Anglo-Saxon. Mm -hmm. So for my thesis, I did a translation from the Anglo-Saxon into modern English oh, with wow. a commentary of, of Alfred's work, which got me really into Alfred. I mean, I, I had just uh, it was kind of a random pick of just something that looked like it'd be fun to do. But during that, I got really into Alfred. So then when we moved to Oxford, um, a friend of mine, well, it was an NSA graduate who had um, begun working as a literary agent, and he was landing a bunch of people, all these different book deals. And he called me and just said, hey, do you have a book you want to write? And I was just trying to think of what I could do. And we're, we're sitting there living right next to all of the Alfred the Great sites. I had just finished writing on Alfred. And so even though my study at Oxford, I was in Jewish studies at this time, um, but I still had a lot of Alfred on my brain. And so he got me that book deal to write a biography on Alfred the Great. So while I was working on my Oxford work on the side, I would take my family and we would visit all of the Alfred the Great sites all around Wessex in that area. And I wrote that um, that that book over the course of that year. And um, my friend, he did a great job as an agent. He got me a great price for it. So it paid for that book paid for a year of Oxford, basically. It's interesting. That, were you the first person who translated that into modern English? The soliloquies, I, uh, I believe so. Or there, I know that like there were three books there, and I know that a couple of them had, and I think there was maybe a third that I was either the first, or um, or maybe there was one translation out there that I could never find. I can't quite remember. I, I know that other people have done it now. So, at, at some point. When I come and visit you in Idaho, we got to talk about the Danes and the Vikings and how Alfred managed all that. But, um, you know, you mentioned 
your audacity to get challenged, right? So studying chemistry, that's not an easy major. Going to the Marine Corps, that's not easy. Going to UK. Um, so so I, I, th- I think I understand some of the ways you looked at Jewish studies and then Oriental studies, which, which is really broad. So what, what was going through your mind as you were choosing these majors? <laughs> I, we, um, my, my wife teased me a lot. I'm a bit ADD on, on, on my, um, my pursuits. Um, so, um, the English lit degree was really just kind of a random masters that I was doing on the side, just as I was being captivated by the liberal arts. When I started teaching at new St. Andrews, it was, um, theology was my primary thing. And then I started, um, learning Hebrew and, and teaching a little bit of Hebrew. And so when I got the chance to go to Oxford, um, the Jewish studies program allowed me to really dive into the Hebrew, which I found to be just exciting. And um, another side note, my Hebrew teacher at Oxford um, got to be a very good friend of mine. And now I, we we hired him to New St. Andrews. So he's the academic dean who's um, across the hall from me here. Um, but I had just such a good time studying Hebrew with him during that, that first year. And then when I, so I did a master's in Jewish studies and I stayed on for a doctorate. So what I did was I wanted to continue looking at Hebrew, but I really wanted to look at theology a little bit more. And so I asked the question of what what happened during the Reformation when the Protestants returned to the Hebrew Bible, because Christians had read the Bible in Latin for, you know, a thousand years. If you wanted to study Hebrew, you actually had to go find a Jewish rabbi to teach you Hebrew. And when usually when somebody teaches you a language, you learn more than just a language. You learn how that person reads the text. So you have about a hundred years there where the Protestants are going to the um, Jewish rabbis saying, teach me Hebrew. So you have a hundred years there where medieval rabbinic Judaism is actually um, becoming an important foundation for the Protestant Reformation. And I think there was a lot of people that just didn't know that story. So that's what I really wanted to dive into. I thought it was really intriguing. Fascinating. And, you know, obviously, St. Andrews in Scotland is one of the oldest universities in Europe. What, what is, is, is there any link to that as far as the name of your school? It, it was um, more ideological. So um, during the, the um, Protestant Reformation, and then moving into the late 16th, early 17th century, the, the Scottish Presbyterian Church, there was a, a particularly unique sort of uh, vibrancy of what came out of St. Andrews in Scotland and St. Andrews University became the backbone for the Presbyterian movement. And we are, um, our our theological tradition is Presbyterian. So I think the new St. Andrews was a nod to those Presbyterian roots, although it now becomes, I I don't think when they first named it, the NSA had quite the the prominence and connotations that it now has but now when you say you're from the nsa then people think that you're listening in on their computer or phone or something like that different nsa fascinating thanks for sharing that uh it's it's interesting so you are i think we've interviewed about 80 presidents in our podcast i think you're the first university um and now i'm intrigued that doesn't accept Pell gland and financial aid okay so talk to us about you know, students being able to afford your program. And also, you still have governance over accreditation, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we still have accreditation and uh, state authorization and and all of that. Um, So, um, yeah, 
that that decision to not take the federal money, that was one of those, you know, I mentioned when I first became president, like just looking at the school and saying, what are some of these, there are a number of really unique principles that are here. Why is this? And that one is one that um, I think is just so intriguing. And I think that there is so much foresight in the board and the founding president in establishing that principle. Because one of the things it does is, first of all, I one of my concerns about higher ed, and this will probably come out in the big ed post, is that we have a lot of, I think we have tuition inflation. I think that a lot of our colleges are, are overpriced. And a lot of that comes because of the federal money that supplements um, and allows a lot of students to pay a tuition that I think is a little bit inflated. Um, I think that we probably need a little bit of price correction somewhere in there, um, as well as probably not everybody that's going to college needs to be going to college. And I don't mean that in an elitist sort of way. I just think that there are a lot of jobs that um, don't need a college degree in order to perform them. And I think that we should maybe shrink our focus just a little bit. For our students, um, we try to keep our tuition as affordable as possible. So this year, our tuition is $14,500. Basically, a student who is able to work full-time over the summer and save up, you know, if they could save, put aside five to six K over the course of the summer, if they could work a part-time job during their time uh, at the, um, during the school year, if their parents can kick in a few thousand dollars, and then generally the school um, will will do a couple grand in financial aid for a lot of the students that maybe don't have a lot of money set aside for college. Generally, when somebody approaches it with that kind of focus, they can make it through and they can make it through debt-free. I do a lot of work fundraising to try to make sure that that scholarship money is there and, and to get as many people through that are qualified for the education as we can. Wow. So, you know, you're not doing a hard sell. I mean, you're telling the students, A, you're not going to be in residential. You're going to have to start standing on your own two feet, start saving money, pay for this education. Yeah. And if I'm a parent, right, mm-hmm. what, what are you telling me as far as what what is my kid is going to get out of here, out of your experience versus University of Idaho or, or some other institutions? Yeah. So, um yeah, you're you're right. It's not a hard sell. I mean, it's it's funny, but the but the bizarre thing is our our enrollment is skyrocketing. I like, mean, by our standards, obviously we're a teeny little school, but um, two years ago our our largest class ever was sixty, and then we had a record year of sixty one, and then we did ninety three. This year we did ninety nine. It's continuing to go up, and our enrollment, our applications for next year are looking the same right now. And and what I think it shows is how much. Um, you're right. It's not a hard sell in that I'm, we're not hitting the notes that a lot of other colleges are, are all hitting. We're definitely leaning in a different direction. And what I'm seeing is that there's a lot of students who are st- a lot of families who are standing back and saying, is college really doing what I want uh, it to do? Is it really giving me what I want it to give me? And as we, um, as we basically, uh, explain these these certain principles that were that are guiding principles there's a number of people out there are saying that's totally different and that's exactly what i want um it's funny to me how many students have come and and said the thing that sold me on nsa was no dorms i i did not want to be um 
housed in a dorm and treated like that and want to be treated like an adult. That's, that's um, frequently a very um, uh, strong selling point. Um, the, the no federal money, uh, no student loans and whatnot, it means you're going to have to work harder, but it also means you're going to graduate without debt. Um, and I think that that's a really um, big deal. And it also, um, I think that it helps, like, I've never seen an NSA student graduate and not go out and get a job. They, they like, it's 100%, they go and they work. And the reason is because they've been working this whole time through school. There's not like this moment where you suddenly like have to stop living off of student loans and now start getting a job. They've all been working this whole time. Um, and I think that that really helps them to transition to adult life well. And then the other thing is, um, you know, I think one of the things that college, one of the things that college can do really well is it it meets the students in those years from 18 to 22, which is some of the most formative years of your life. Like this is this is when so much of who you are gets set into stone uh, and what you're going to be like. That day you walk away from your parents' house and you get your own apartment and you start feeling like, you start figuring out what am I going to be like? How am I going to live? And to meet the students at that point with a very intense and focused kind of spiritual formation has a really disproportionate impact on the rest of their lives. You know, one of the things I think is remarkable, we we um, we survey our graduates, our alum at five years and at 15 years. And at 15 years, um, we have a it's I think it's a right around a three percent divorce rate. Um which when you think about the national average and then you think about what the 3% is, is shocking. Now it's only 15 years. There's plenty of room for Rocky road ahead, but even at 15 years, that's a shocking statistic. And I think it speaks to the health of the formation that's going in during these years. We're really trying to create a certain kind of faithful Christian person for, for the rest of our life. And it, and I think that it, it as we see, as we've, turned out alums, um, more and more people are seeing the fruit of the product and becoming interested in it for their own students. Are you thinking about online at all? And I mean, with everything you talked about, how would you reconcile this culture for online students? So we have um, we have one master's degree, a master's in classical Christian studies that's done as a limited residency. So it's um, it's a three-term year. It's two years of a three-term year. Two of those terms are done entirely online. And then one term, there's a one-week required residency here in Moscow where they come and uh, spend a week here. And this is a master's degree in classical Christian studies. It tends to be teachers in the classical Christian education movement. That's the only real focused online thing we do. And that's kind of on purpose. We we talk a lot about online possibilities. I know that we could, if we decided to put something online, I know we could sell it really fast, but we're far more focused on this whole person formation that we're seeing. And I don't, I don't know that we could accomplish that in an online format. So we're quite hesitant to go there just because it's not it's not our mission to just make money or to just get as many degrees out there as we can. Our goal is to impart a very particular kind of intellectual and spiritual formation that we feel like we're doing well here and don't want to mess with that. Very interesting. So talk about the kind of degrees and, and your programs and the academic rigor for our listeners, please. 
Sure. So um, the undergraduate is just that one degree in liberal arts and culture. We do have the master's in classical Christian studies. We do an MFA in writing as well. Um, and we do have an MA in uh, in uh, theology and letters. So it's a theology uh, focused master's degree. The undergraduate degree is really the the bread and butter. I mean, that's the thing that that drives everything else. And it's a intense um, liberal arts oriented kind of great booksy, not quite all the way St. John's, but a strong um, backbone of great books uh, from the Western tradition throughout it. It's the typical kind of liberal arts mix of philosophy, history, theology, literature, um, mixed with a really strong emphasis on language. So all students, when they first show up, we're going to do, there's a requirement that you do three years of classical language and at least one of those has to be um, at a second year level where you're reading in translation and, and you're actually having conversations about the original text. Um, our Latin is taught as a spoken language. The students show up and they're actually going into conversation, learning to actually like I see a lot of language classes that are more about learning how to do exercises in that lang- in that language. You know, I know how to do Latin la- exercises. We want them to actually be able to truly pick up a text and read. Um, and so we teach it as a spoken language. We do that with Latin, and then we also have Greek and biblical Hebrew. Um, I we're hoping that we can get Anglo-Saxon here at some point, but it's it's not here yet. Um and then uh all, another thing that's unique is all of our students do a one year of music their first year, um, because we want them to be a part of the singing uh culture of our of our town. Um, they do two years of theology. They do classical rhetoric where they're upfront speaking and arguing on a regular basis and getting very comfortable presenting and arguing in front of a crowd of people. But that's the, the, the general kind of gist of what they do. They all have to write a, a, a dissertation at the end or a thesis, uh, in order to graduate that they'll have to defend. That's great. So you do have a capstone. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the thesis is a pretty big piece of it. And and where are your students today? What kind of professions do they end up going into? It's really diverse. I mean, and that's the that's the it's it's uh, both a blessing and a curse because the curse is that I can never answer that question because I I don't have one one like uh, clear. Oh, they they all go here. They really go all over the place. Um, I would say places where I've seen them do particularly well would be where. Um, you know, a number will go on and get a, a professionalized master's degree, an MBA or a law degree and go into finance or law. I've seen them do really well at that. A few of them have gone on to medicine, which has been really impressive that um, because they they have to do a little bit more undergrad work in order to get the qualification to go on to their um, med school. Um, the places where the other places where I'd say I, I see the degree do really well would be um, anything involving um, persuasion, communication, so sales, um, media. Uh, I've seen a number of the students do quite well. Actually, in film has been really interesting, learning actually to be filmmakers uh, and storytellers. So film, media, books, um, a lot of successful authors coming out of here. That's part of the reason why we started the MFA was because we saw so many writers coming out of our uh, undergrad. And so we wanted something that helps them to really perfect that skill. So a lot of writing, um, a number, um, 
a lot of the classical Christian schools are always coming to us to try to get teachers from us. And a few of the students do that, but in general, um, not nearly as many as you would think. They tend to get more into uh, the corporate world. So a lot go into more like an entrepreneurial business space, um, starting real estate, starting construction, starting all kinds of different um, bizarre, very entrepreneurial um, kinds of companies. One of our grads figured out that um, he, I, I'm not sure exactly how he got into this space, but he figured out that uh, a lot of college textbooks were all getting thrown away. And he figured out how to basically hit recycling centers across the U.S., grab all these textbooks, rebind them, and then resell them, and is making huge money uh, with this company um, with, um, repurposing college textbooks. Um, those are the kinds of like entrepreneurial things I see a lot of them doing. So your graduation rate is 60%. Is that is that accurate? Um, uh, the six-year degree completion rate, I thought was we're pushing 70, but maybe if you're looking at a recent iPad, maybe I'm, I'm out of date. And, and by the way, that's incredible. I mean, I think the average we get is about 50 to 55%. So um, what are some of the reasons students can't complete? Can't complete? Yeah, can't complete. What, what prevents them from completing an education? Um, what prevents them, did you say? Yeah. 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 So um, I would say the things that we would see usually in the first year, there'll be a couple of them where they just realize they weren't cut out for the rigor of what we're doing because it's a very intense. It it is. It's I should say it's a really intense um, degree. You have to study really hard to get through it. And there's always a couple where um, from uh, in admissions, I, I really want to not accept a student if we're not confident that they can do well. I think. Um, I tell the admissions people, I think it's theft on our part. If we if we take tuition money from somebody, promising to them, give them a product that we're not sure we can actually give them. So we try to make sure in admissions, but every now and then you miss a couple. So there's always a little bit of attrition there. As they move forward, the things that tend to cause them to drop out would be um, some will encounter a financial difficulty, but usually it's accompanied by something that's going on at home or a health something. If somebody has a health crisis, frequently that'll interrupt it. The other would be um, we have students who get married and uh, start families, and then they, um, they can't carry the school load along with providing for the family or having babies or whatever it is that they're doing. So um, I would say starting families in the middle of college tends to um, take people out or slow them down. And, um, and then the other would be sometimes they just realize it's just not the right place for them. And and that'll happen every now and then. Um, But those would probably be the main, main factors. Any other thing you want to leave our listeners with any other message? Um, yeah, I think I think that this is a really good time to step back and ask harder questions about what colleges are doing, why they're doing it, and whether that's the only way of doing it. Um, whenever I get up to speak to a large crowd, I try to make a strong, strong point of college is not for everyone. And I don't think we should be telling people that everybody needs a college degree. Plenty of rewarding jobs out there that you don't need a college degree for, or a college degree is not the best way to train for, for that that job. So I, th- I think you want to get all of those hard questions out there. And then once, once 
you've got all that out there. Then you say, so what could a college do? And then find something that pushes you, makes you scared, terrifies you, pushes you hard, and invites you to um, level up and your own expectations of what you might what what you might tackle. But um, but I think it has to start with asking some of those hard questions and don't don't believe that there's only one way that this has to be done. Dr. Merkel, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.